welcome to this week's sermon from C3 Church Narara. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Chris Brown. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net. Now, um, I, uh, I'm excited to talk about um, what God's speaking to me uh, from his word. We're continuing a series that relates to our Vision Builders program, uh, but there is application from what we read in the word in, in lots of different areas. And of course, if you're visiting, we don't want you to feel like, you know, there's any compulsion, but by all means, you know, pray, read the brochure, you know, you can always participate if you like. Um, but there are a lot of lessons uh, about the house of God, and we're looking at three different eras of the house of God in the Old Testament. And last week we looked at Moses and company, who in the wilderness for 40 years uh, needed a place of worship, and so they had the tabernacle constructed under God's instructions. And we talked specifically and saw how the um, offerings were brought in for that and how the people were generous and excited and committed and connected uh, to what God was wanting to do so he could have a place of meeting, meeting with his people. So after Moses, as you may know, uh, Joshua came to lead the people of Israel into Canaan, the promised land. And there they settled, got established, And if you fast forward 500 years, you find yourself now uh, in the kingdom of David, ruling over all the tribes of Israel and over that land. And so David is well established. Uh, We're going to read in uh, 1 Chronicles about uh, his reign. He's enjoying life. He's got his own palace. In fact, he's got his own city named after him. It's pretty cool. He's ruling over a very prosperous kingdom. As they say, he's living the dream. But he's unsettled because David loves the Lord. He's devoted to God and he knows there's something not quite right, something not quite finished, something that needs to be done relating to a permanent place of worship where God can meet with his people. And so David calls the prophet Nathan to see what God has to say. And we're going to read from 1 Chronicles 17. And I think Kath's got scriptures up on the screen for us, but if you're following, it's in the New Living Translation. And I'm going to read a number of passages that relate to and, well, that chart David's decisions. And then I'm going to make three observations and uh, application for our lives today from, from what he did. So the first passage, First Chronicles 17, first 15 verses, it says, David was settled in his palace, as I just said. And he summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but the ark of the Lord's covenant is out there under a tent. And that's, of course, the ark that carried God's presence, just like Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, um, and, uh, and so Nathan replies to David, do whatever you have in mind, for God is with you. Just notice that statement. That says something about David's heart condition. It's in a good place because God wouldn't say through a prophet, do whatever you have in mind, to everyone. You know, because depending on the heart, imagine, you know, some people might, cool, 
want to rip off my boss and, you know, steal my neighbor's car. And no, no, no. So David's in a good place for God to say through the prophet, do whatever is in your heart. And we can be in that place too. God can put desires in your heart. He can sift through the desires that come and go into our hearts so that we can trust them when we're walking closely with the Lord. Isn't that awesome? And so then we're not stuck with this, oh, what should I do? Is it God's will? And then we can feel confident this is the way of the Lord. I know this is God's will. That's a good place to be. And David was there and told, yep, God's with you. Trust your instinct. Trust your heart. And then it says God spoke to Nathan that night and said, go back and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. You're not the one to build a house for me to live in. And I've never had... A house From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this very day, my home has always been in a tent, moving from one place to another in a tabernacle. No matter where I've gone with the Israelites, I've never complained to Israel's leaders, the shepherds of my people. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? So go back and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's army has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pastures and selected you to be leader of my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and I've destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who's ever lived in the earth. And I'll provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they'll never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past. Starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel, And I will defeat all your enemies. Furthermore, I declare that the Lord will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons, and I'll make his kingdom strong. He's the one who will build a house, a temple for me. And I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I'll never take my favor from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. I'll confirm him as king over my house and my kingdom for all time and his throne will be secure forever. So Nathan went back to David, told him everything the Lord had said in the vision. So notice David's told that he isn't the one to build the temple, the house of God. Now a lesser man could have really been put out by that. A prouder man might have walked away from the project saying, well, if I can't build the temple, I don't want anything to do with it. I want it to be all about me. And God's saying, no, you can't do it. But David's too smart, too humble to do that. And so he flows with God's will. Who knows it's always a good idea to flow with God's will. You know, we've got our own ideas and then God can say through a prophet or the word or other counsel around us, something that sort of is not quite quite what we would have liked. And we're better off submitting with that and listening and flowing and saying, okay, and David does. So he's going to now leave it for his son, Solomon, who we'll read about, to build the temple. But notice he doesn't just leave it completely in this upset, dismissive way. Okay, fine. Solomon, all right, it's not my job, whatever. Because a few chapters later, we read this, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 5. It says, David said, My son Solomon is still young and inexperienced. And since the temple to be built for the Lord must be a magnificent structure, famous and glorious throughout the world, I will begin making preparations. Everyone say preparations. Preparations for it now. So David collected vast amounts of building materials before his death. David sent for his son Solomon and instructed him to build a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. My son, I wanted to build a temple. 
to honour the name of the Lord, David told him. But the Lord said, you've killed many men in the battles that you've fought. And since you have shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honour me. But you will have a son who will be a man of peace. I will give him peace with his enemies in all the surrounding lands. And his name will be Solomon. And I will give him peace and quiet to Israel during his reign. He's the one who will build a temple to honour my name. He will be my son. I'll be his father. I'll secure the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Now, my son, this is David speaking to Solomon, charging him. May the Lord be with you and give you success as you follow his directions in building the temple of the Lord your God. So there's the reason that God wanted Solomon, not David, to build the temple. Because there is a time for war, but God wanted Solomon, who was a man of peace, to oversee the temple's construction. So David then goes and collects the resources that is needed. And, and when you read the following chapters, you see two interesting things. Firstly, David actually goes ahead and anoints and appoints Solomon to be king while David's still around, which shows his humility again because he's able to step aside, give Solomon a chance to rule while still having David around to advise him whereas most kings hold on to the bitter end and only let go when they have to, i.e. death. So that's another cool reflection on David's humility. Also, you read that David organises people to serve in the house of God according to their gifts and abilities. And there's quite a lot of detail, which we won't go into, where he's got people who are musically gifted to be the worship leaders and details all the different tribes and people anointed and called to that area and others who are financial controllers and administrators and uh, gatekeepers who are doing the work of the uh, attendants and deacons that we would see in our era, overseeing security and the practical side of things. And then um, one more passage. How are you going? You still with me? All right, 1 Corinthians... Oh, Joe, you're so encouraging. Yes. <laughs> one, one, one Chronicles 29, right? So we just read, thank you. 29, verse 2. Using every resource at my command. Here's David speaking. He says, I've gathered as much as I could for building the temple of the Lord. Now there's enough gold, silver, bronze, iron and wood, as well as great quantities of onyx, precious stones, costly jewels, all kinds of fine stone and marble. And now because of my devotion to the temple of my God, I'm giving all my own private treasures of gold and silver to help in the construction. This is in addition to the building materials I've already collected for his holy temple. So I'm donating more than 112 tons of gold. David was quite well off. Let's, let's just notice that. Anyone got 112 tons of gold in the garage? Um, oh, he's got 262 tons of refined silver too. They're going to overlay the walls of the buildings. This was the temple that was built, as you may know, was the most wonderful building, some say, ever constructed in history. They've figured out in today's money how many billions of dollars that it cost to construct when Solomon had it finished. He says, and for other gold and silver work to be done uh, by the craftsmen. Now look at verse 5. Who then will follow my example and give offerings to the Lord today? So the family leaders, the leaders of the tribes of Israel, the generals and the captains of the army and the king's administrative officers all gave willingly for the construction of the temple of the Lord and they gave 188 tons of gold, 10,000 gold coins, 300, lots of stuff. Now, 
notice three things about all this. The first one is the fact that offerings are involved. And I mentioned this last week. God could easily, miraculously provide places of worship, whether it's the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the temple for this era, or churches in the New Testament. God could just say, look here, here are these buildings I want you to meet. Because he would do a better job. There'd be less angst. There'd be no councils. Oh, you know, there'd be uh, you know, no sort of pressure or... There'd be a lot of problems would be solved if God had just provided buildings. Or he could have said, forget about buildings, just worship me individually because you've got to have your own personal devotion to God. So just, I don't care whether you gather. It's all, you've all got to make your own personal decision to follow God and commit your life to Christ and go to heaven. So just do that. And if you want to meet with other people, that's fine. But the main thing is have your heart right with me and let's not worry about gatherings and you know rehearsals and sound and lights and buildings and money and all just but he doesn't does he God's always involved people he wants people to gather with him and with each other and he involves them calls us to contribute to the construction of these gathering places and that's significant we take it for granted and and yet God didn't have to set things up that way. And we, we commented on that last week. The same with Moses and, and again here, David and, and the people. Because uh, God wants places that are consecrated to him, that are filled with his presence, with his power, with his people gathering in a particular place to worship him. And to do that, as I said, he calls people to give towards this construction. So David hears and heeds this call. And notice there it says that he, he brings uh, resources from the kingdom's treasury that he oversees. And then beyond that, he gives his own personal wealth. And then as a model, he challenges others around him to do the same. And they, it says, gave willingly. So it's interesting, David's unashamed to stir the people in their worship to God to give financially, materially, to God's house. And notice that this is not just about paying for the building. Though that's important and the same in the New Testament, uh, it's good to to pay for the building. But there's more at work here. God's called us to give to his house because he knows how good it is for us. He knows that if we engage our heart into what God is doing, we will be closer to him in our relationship and it helps us prioritize in our lives what God says is important rather than just you know tacking God on to our lives with all our plans and dreams and schemes and and financial priorities and then oh you know just sort of think about God occasionally or put a little tip in the offering plate or now God set it up so that we can be on the front foot in our devotion and our contribution to what he's doing and, uh, and so that we are partnering with the Lord's work, that we're participating, not just being spectators. And of course, this can happen for each one of us, and it's not the dollar amount, because each one of us can have a point of, of stretch and sacrifice that will be different. So, you know, a, a, a child or a student, uh, right up to someone who's more 
comfortably well off and prosperous, uh, it's always good for us to, to find, and that's why we say pray and listen and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Uh, and um, I think it was Mother Teresa who once said, if, if you give and there's no sacrifice, there's really, it's, it's not giving. And so God's happy for us to feel some tension and, and, and have a bit of a sense of stretch. Now, Forgive me if you've heard this story because I know we've talked about our time in Russia a number of times, um, but I'll tell it again anyway. And you can feign interest if you've heard this one. Uh, 25 years ago, this very month, we headed to St. Petersburg in Russia um, where there was a great revival going on and we were called and sent from our mother church, our home church, C3 Church in Sydney, Pastor Phil Pringle sent us to help serve and lead a church that was in part of this revival season and there was a lot of political and economic turmoil at the time as you probably know because the communist government had just collapsed but in all the uncertainty many people were finding faith in Christ for the first time and for others being able to for the first time in 70 years worship God publicly and gather publicly and hear the gospel preached publicly because the communist system had had fallen and uh, as I said a lot of people were um uh, we're doing it tough financially because the economic environment. But at the same time, they were learning God's principles of managing money and finding that they were blessed as a result. And one of these ladies, one of these people, was a lady named Arena because most women were named Arena. At that time, true, if in doubt, just prophesy Arena and... It's amazing how many arenas there were. Um, and this one was a street sweeper, which is really, you know, the bottom of the rung in terms of salary and social position and status. Uh, so she's on a minimal government wage, which is dropping in value every day because inflation was going mental. And so she's being paid in Russian rubles at her level government wage. And inflation at the time, I remember calculating, was about 2,000% per annum. And I've used that figure over the years. And then I checked myself the other day thinking, I I should look that up. And I found some historical statistics. And uh, sure enough, it confirmed our calculations and our experience. The highest rate of inflation in Russian history, was in December 1992. It's exactly the time I'm talking about. The inflation rate was 2,333%, which meant that your pay in rubles was worth less and less every day. There were kids selling souvenirs on the streets for US dollars, making more money than high-ranking public servants who a doctor or a university professor who would be on, you know, in our terminology today, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, suddenly that's worth less, 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 less. less. And so um, Irina, like many others, was uh, in the natural, in financial stress. Uh, And then she came to us and she said, I want to commit a thousand rubles a month to your ministry. And uh, she wanted to sow into what God was doing through us because she needed God to move in her life. She was not only stretched financially, but her husband was an alcoholic, he was an atheist, and he was aggressively against her newfound faith in Christ and her commitment to the church. Uh, 
and um, and yet she felt that she needed to stay with him because she understood that was biblical, and she wanted to pray for him. and uh, And I could have, of course, said, "Well, hey, you keep your money. You need it more than we do. That was worth like a dollar." And she was saying, "I want to give this to you every month." But I understood what was happening and how she felt. I want to. I want to be part of what God is doing, and in doing so. I'm believing that he will look after me. I will see those windows of heaven that the Bible talks about opened above me. And we understood that and said, okay, fine. So I would get the thousand ruble note and pin it on my notice board above my desk every month and pray for her and for her situation for her husband. In fact, another missionary visiting at the time heard about this and came and freaked out and told me that was uh, outrageous and uh, we're, we're... doing the wrong thing and how terrible it is for us to take the money of the locals. And I thought, well, you just don't get it. You know, we're not after her money. Of course, we don't need the money, but it's good for her. Like I'm saying, it's, and and just like David and these people and all the people throughout history who have given to God's work, it's good for us. And uh, it was a sacrifice to her, but um, we knew it was a good one. And, uh, And so she continued to pray. She faithfully served in the church. Nothing changed. Uh, And we came home. Uh, having been there for nearly two years. But we went back. And um, on one of the trips back a few years later, things had miraculously turned around. I noticed that she looked particularly well-dressed. And her husband, after all her prayers, was now born again, clean and off the grog. They had started a business and they were millionaires. And uh, no more sweeping the streets for her. Uh, so God had miraculously moved in that very real, tangible, practical, material, financial way after her faithfulness to him, to his house, and con- contribution to his work. Yeah? So there's blessing uh, when we give uh, to the Lord's work, and, uh, and that's why he calls us to contribute. And the second thing to notice in what David was doing here was the flow-on effect from his devotion to God to devotion to God's house. Because David's referred to in Scripture as a man after God's own heart. He was known for his passion for God. You see it in the Psalms that he wrote. Here he is, he's elevated to a high position and yet he keeps his humility. He's hungry for the ways of God. And yeah, we know he he made some mistakes, a couple of big doozies along the way, but... Uh, he still repented and felt God's call on his life. And, and because of all that, in fact, David's chosen amongst all others in history to be the one from whose lineage Jesus would come. And so Jesus is called the son of David. How incredible is that? And so the essence of, God, of, of David's uh, devotion to God, of course, is in his heart, but it flows to wanting to construct a building for God's glory. And you know, in the New Testament, when we talk about the Lord's house and, and buildings, of course, we are actually the temple. We are called to house the presence of God, to have the Holy Spirit live inside us. We're called the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the essence of the church is not a building and never will be. It's not just a physical place, but people, the ecclesia, the called out ones. We are the the, the church. But when we establish that and we have a passion for the Lord, there's, it's going to encompass a passion for God's house, which means we love to meet 
together, which means we want a place to meet together and we want to minister to God, we want to minister to other people and that flows into having a secure physical structure, a building of some kind that we can secure for God's glory, that we can uh, facilitate his ministry in and through. And, so, and of course that means not just renting, but eventually, ideally, owning something where we are established in a community in such a way that a landlord can't just get rid of you or put the rent up so much that the church is stressed financially. And, you know, last month we visited a, a few different churches in Sydney and New Zealand and the Cook Islands. And all of them identify with and use a building of some kind. Again, that's not the essence of the church. We, the people of the church. But let's face it, it helps. We all refer to a church. We go to church. We talk about the building. We see the church in the community. Ruth and I are looking. We're riding our little scooter around the Cook Islands. We see a sign for a church and it leads down to a path and a little funny house. And we think, yeah, maybe not that one. And then you go along and there's a building. Oh, Ah, and you think, oh, I think we'll go there. It just feels a little more established in the community. And, uh, and of course, again, it's, it's not the essence, it's not the beginning, but it's a natural flow. It's a natural result of the, of the church to have a building. To, it sends out the message into the community. We're here to stay. You know, we're the, we're the pillar of truth and light to this community in, in that area, we're, we're here to shine the light for God. And so that's part of our calling. We, we have this heart. We're devoted to God. We're devoted to his house. The passion that we have for the church of Jesus. We see God himself meeting with people, ministering to people. And then that passion flows to having good facilities for, for those meetings and for that ministry. Amen. And so that's what you see in David's life and all throughout church history. The buildings are a result of this passion and calling for God. The third thing to note here that David models is having a perspective for the next generation. Because David models a really uh, healthy perspective on life. He's not just living for himself. You know, and life isn't just about us. It's, It's what... Uh, you know, a, a healthy life looks to the future, looks beyond just what I'm doing, but to the next generation to see what effect I can bring to them. Um, to, you know, do something bigger than, than just me that outlives our lives. Uh, you know, so someone once said, uh, what we do in our life is our history, but what we leave behind us is our legacy. And, and David left a legacy. His legacy included the work and the preparation that he made for the building of the temple. Even though he didn't get to see it. He didn't get to do it himself. But he, he, he looked towards it and made some preparations for it. So that requires foresight. That's perspective. The ability to live beyond your own experience and your own enjoyment of life. And this is a theme you see constantly throughout the Bible. You've got godly people, not just living for themselves, but with others in mind. People around them in their community and people who will come after them in their children and the next generation in the future. You know, Asaph was a prophetic songwriter and psalmist who wrote psalms that are recorded in the Bible. And he wrote at the time of David. 
He witnessed what David was doing, that what we're talking about here in preparations and offerings for the temple. And I suspect that he may have been influenced by what David was doing when he wrote these words in Psalm 78. This is the first few verses of one of the Psalms of Asaph, and he talks about the generations. He says, listen, people, open your eyes to what I'm saying. I'll speak to you in a parable. I'll teach you with hidden lessons from our past, stories we've heard and known, stories that our ancestors handed down to us. Listen to this. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and about his mighty wonders. For he issued his laws to Jacob. He gave his instructions to Israel. He commanded our ancestors to teach them to their children so the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his, his commandments. Isn't that awesome? See, that's our calling. Not just to say, oh, thanks, God. I got my ticket to heaven. Good. Oh, I pay my tithe. Believe for the blessing of God. Yeah, now what can I do to enjoy life? Well, that's cool and you can do that and that's wonderful. But what about the next generation? What are you passing on? Are we sharing what God has done? Are we building with them in mind? Are we preparing a place for them to follow the Lord and to minister for him and to him? And that's what Asaph was talking about. As I said, I suspect he saw what David was doing, may have influenced him under God's anointing to write those words and realize, yeah, come on, let's feel and, and embrace that, that charge of perspective on life. And, uh, you know, when we... Again, just we're in New Zealand and the Cook Islands. It's fascinating to see and to learn about what the missionaries had done. And just the, like, we'll talk another day about the wonderful way New Zealand was founded. No wonder they win at flipping rugby. They've got, that's the, I've figured that's the key. And the anthem. Oh, come on. You know, I'm, next, oh, honestly, God defend Australia. I mean, can't, can we just maybe, Change the words and just, you know, anyway. It's, you know, it's, so it's great um, uh, history and the way, you know, the, the country was founded. And, um, and in the Cook Islands, you know, all the missionary endeavours always included planting a church. All right, evangelism is great, but people need, if they give their life to Christ at some public outreach meeting, how are they going to follow that commitment? How are they going to be discipled through and beyond that first-time decision? And so this is why Billy Graham and all the great evangelists have always tried to work with the local church and say, look, I might be a keynote speaker that gathers attention and brings the gospel and leads someone to a great decision, but we need the local church to be planted in that area to help that person grow in Christ and not just backslide and make it a one-off casual commitment. And so these missionaries would come, bring the gospel, and they would plant churches. And as I said, they would normally always lead to buying or building, establishing a permanent structure of some kind that would be used to minister for the generations to come. And talk about sacrifice. You know, we're not talking about, oh, I'll just go without a coffee so I can put a couple of dollars in the you know, building fund over a course of a year. You know, these guys just laid it all out there. Um, you know, their, their whole lives were offerings and commitments to God. Uh, for example, John Williams. 
He and his wife left England, travelled by ship. We're talking early 1800s. So not just, you know, waiting at the airport for their flight. Where are my bags taking such a long time to come out of, you know, sitting through customs? Oh, how long is it going to take? You know, no, they're on ships. Like, you know, we just say, oh, I'm... I'm, I'm going to this country and you, and you put up with a little bit of hassle at the airport. They're on ships, the high seas, the seasickness, the scurvy, the months on end, you know. And they uh, finally get somewhere where the natives may or may not be receptive. And uh, when they're not receptive, we're talking cannibalism. That's, you would have to say, under the category of non-receptive you know you know, if I had to say friendly welcoming behavior don't eat me listen to the gospel okay not very receptive we reject the gospel you look tasty come over for lunch your lunch really that would that's reality so john williams he's rallying the uh the the he's bringing the gospel we, uh, with his wife and family and travelling around these ships. And uh, in 1821, he lands on Atutaki, which is one of the Cook Islands, the beautiful one that everyone wants to go and visit. Um, he uses, he gets the islanders converted and they reach out to the other islands in the group. They convert most of the people on Rarotonga, which is the main island that people go to today, the biggest one in the Cook Islands, most populated one. John Williams returns to Britain he supervises the translation of the New Testament and the printing of the New Testament into the Rarotongan language. So he's got a real heart for these people. He then comes back, hits the high seas again. He arrives in the New Hebrides, which is Vanuatu today. And he gets there in 1839. He spent years travelling around, establishing mission places and churches. But they don't receive the gospel and he's captured, killed and eaten by the locals who were cannibals. And in fact, here's this picture of a cemetery in the Cook Islands with a mountain in the background, uh, which is like where Ruth slipped over. And then the next photo is a memorial stone to John Williams. And it reads, sacred to the memory of, the John, of Reverend John Williams of the London Missionary Society, who with his friend Mr Harris was massacred by deluded natives at Iramunga while attempting to convey to them the blessings of salvation. And so they, uh, of course, don't have his remains, but they place that in Rarotonga where he had done so much good work. And when we visited a church right near there, the preacher, who was a policeman, very straight, strong, he was referring to the missionaries and challenging the locals about their past. Not that, you know, they're guilty or that, you know, they can do anything about it except to appreciate where they've come from and so he said um, you know the missionaries are great they brought the word of God uh, and uh, and then he said this and Ruth wrote down the quote he said you you were people who eat people and if God can change the hearts of your forefathers by his word then he can change you so read your bible and so he was very strong and blunt about the the history of cannibalism amongst these islanders, but praise God for the missionaries. And missionaries get a pretty bad rap often, but uh, these guys, you know, laid it all out. And this guy, John Williams, you know, he died tragically. Uh, he was still in his early 40s. 
But the point is, he left a great legacy. His work was not in vain. He stirred others back in England to the mission field. In fact, there were seven missionary ships over the next hundred years named after him that were used to spread the gospel and people always reminded of his great sacrifice. In fact, in 2009, his descendants went to Vanuatu to accept the apologies of the cannibals' descendants. And in Vanuatu today, 85% of the population are committed Christians. So he lost his life in bringing the gospel, but many lives have been saved as a result of his actions. And, you know, you might sit there comfortably and think, well, I'm not a cannibal. That's good. I'm glad. Uh, And maybe your forefathers weren't either. But all of us have a point of sin that needs to be dealt with and needs the gospel to come into our life. And praise God for those who have brought it. So finally, one more passage. This is what it's all about. David's brought people to give. He's got a perspective so that he's thinking of the next generation and they're building the house of God. And in 1 Chronicles 29, it says, Oh God, even this material we have gathered to build a temple to honour your holy name comes from you. It all belongs to you. This is David speaking. I know, my God, that you examine our hearts and rejoice when you find integrity there. You know I've done all this with good motives. I've watched your people offer their gifts willingly and joyously. Oh God, the God of our ancestors, Abraham and Isaac and Israel, make your people always want to obey you. See to it that their love for you never changes. Give my son Solomon the wholehearted desire to obey all your commands, lords and decrees, to do everything necessary to build the temple for which I've made these preparations. And then David said to the whole assembly, give praise to the Lord your God. And the entire assembly praised the Lord, the God of their ancestors. They bowed low and knelt before the Lord and the king. So they were reminded that it's all about the Lord. It's not just the building. It's not, oh, God, look at this great building we're going to build. I'm going to put David's name over the top or Solomon, neon lights. It's glory to the Lord. And all that we do, including building funds and buildings and structures, and all, it's all about him. And David led from the front those other people so that their heart was in the right place. Worship to God, devotion to God, glory to God. Amen? Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed this week's sermon. For more information or to contact us, visit c3church.narara.net.